0: As you're turning to genesis chapter thirty two this morning, we you to think uh, for a moment how often it is that we endure one storm only to see another on the horizon. We survive the crippling crushes of the waves only to be swept into yet another storm. Consider even the events of our society. We were weathering. It seemed the storm. Of the coronavirus. Only to be met with another storm. Only to be. Confronted in our minds with yet other things. Brothers and sisters. So is the way. Of a fallen world. So is the way often. That God's people have traversed. For many years. Centuries we endure when we see the light at the end of the tunnel, here comes another storm brewing. This, of course, is why the Lord reminded us in Luke chapter 13 that we are to strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. We could summarize the Christian life as one of striving. Striving. One of endless trial and suffering. Brothers and sisters, as you think about that, that was the way of of this dear saint, Jacob. It seemed that he would go from one storm to the next in life, coming out of one only to be met by another. Many of the storms that he faced were of his own making. His own sinful choices. He flees from his brother he runs into old uncle Laban and and as he gets from the grips of Uncle Laban he's met with yet another storm now just to summarize where we've been I, I don't assume that many of you have been following along I pray that you have if you've not that's okay catch you up here in just a Over the last few weeks in our devotionals, we've been thinking about the life of Jacob. And we've seen this this one born of Isaac. He's the third of the patriarchs. Abraham passes on the baton to his son Isaac. And God chooses that through the children of Isaac, not Ishmael, would come the, the promised child. And then comes on the scene Esau and Jacob. twins. And we are told that the Lord chooses the younger Jacob over and against the older Esau. Sort of reordering of society. Well, throughout the life of Jacob, his name meaning deceiver, he has really lived up to the name, one of deception. First, deceiving his brother, tricking his brother into selling him a birthright which would have been his rite of passage in order to inherit everything from the family, to be the next leader of the family when their father Isaac dies. Jacob tricks him. And then, to make it even worse, he doesn't just trick him for his birthright. Later, we're told that he tricks his father into getting Esau's blessing. Of course, like any of us, we would have been enraged. Our birthright and blessing gone. We have nothing but a meager little blessing from our father that life is going to be hard and we're going to have to contend with men for the rest of our lives. And Esau responds in murderous rage. Like Cain before him, he seeks to destroy his brother Jacob. And so Jacob's mom, loving him as she did, sends him away back to her homeland, back to her brother Jacob. Laban, where Jacob, the deceiver, is met with a formidable foe, one who is just as deceptive, just as trickery as he is. And we, were, we, we learned how God had met with Jacob just before he left the promised land and in a dream Jacob witnessed angels ascending and descending from heaven. And God met with Jacob at Bethel and said, I will be with you wherever you go. And Jacob left the promised land. And for 20 years, he lived in Mesopotamia, far from his father's home, far from the promised land and far from any sense of protection. But yet God's word sustained him and his promise continued that wherever Jacob went, the Lord would be. And Jacob lived for 20 years with Laban in Mesopotamia, serving for his two daughters, and then ultimately for some flocks. Jacob has finally got himself free from Uncle Laban, only to be met with yet again his brother Esau. It seems as if another storm has begun to brew. One that's 20 years in the making. What will Esau do? Will he destroy Jacob? Or will he let him go free? Well, as Jacob left the promised land and met God, so as Jacob returns to the promised land, he meets God. A sort of picture of Eden. As the garden was guarded by cherubim, by angels, so the promised land is guarded by angels. With that sort of in our minds, let's go to Genesis chapter 32. Uh, We're going to consider this morning chapters 32, 33, and 34. That's a long and lengthy text. Um, So I'm going to do some summarizing. I'm going to do some clarifying, and we're going to get to some application of the particular text. But before I do, I want to to set again the context for which all of the events that are about to unfold take place, which is really in chapter 32. So I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. I encourage you to have your Bibles open. Stay with me as I highlight a number of things. But I'm going to read beginning in verse 1. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place, Manahem. Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them. Thus you shall say to my Lord Esau. Thus says your servant, Jacob. I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him. And the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant for with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps please deliver me from the hand of my brother from the hand of Esau for I fear him that he may come and attack me the mothers with the children But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for the multitude. So Jacob stayed there that night. And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 hues and 20 rams, 30 milking camels, their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself. And he said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between the drove and drove. He instructed the first when Esau my brother meets you and ask to whom do these belong? Where are you going and whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say they belong to your servant, Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. Well, as we think about these particular, this particular story and, and what will come in, in the reunion of Jacob and Esau. And then in chapter 34, the assault upon Jacob's daughter, Diane. What we see in this passage and summarize these in, in this particular way. That in the midst of Jacob's distress, he is met with the unmerited favor of the Lord and his brother Esau. This passage is a reminder that the Lord will be with his people wherever they go. While you and I endure distressing times, we must learn to trust the Lord who has shown us unmerited favor. The truth as Christians this morning is that only by faith in Christ will God's people ultimately endure. And so this morning, I want us to be encouraged to live by faith in Christ, in the promises of God, who shows us grace and every twist and turn in life. And so uh, I've organized these three chapters around three ways God's grace is displayed to Jacob. First, we see in chapter 32, uh, God's relentless grace. God's grace is relentless. It's unending. It's enduring. In chapter 33, we see God's grace is a reconciling grace. It reconciles not only to man, but to God. In other words, before Jacob could reconcile with Esau, he had to be reconciled to God. And we'll see that in chapter 13. 30, 32 and 33. And finally this morning in chapter 34, we see God's fierce grace. Brothers and sisters, sometimes one of the most gracious things God does to his people is chastise them. Discipline them. Because of their disobedience. And sometimes we don't feel that it's very gracious of the Lord. But what Jacob is going to learn when he wrestles with God is that sometimes the nation of Israel will feel as if God is striving against them rather than for them. Because it is in those moments when it feels like God is against us, that we learn that He's really for us by disciplining us When we rebel against his good word in our life. Well, these are the three graces we want to consider this morning. First in chapter 32, relentless grace. We see a relentless grace of God. Now, again, as you read, you saw Jacob's distress. He is obviously uh, rightly afraid of his brother Esau. Esau's a big hairy dude. He's a hunter. He's the man's man. And he's coming not just by himself, but with 400 men. You'll be reminded many, many weeks ago when we studied Abraham and when he went out to defeat the kings in the valley, the the valley kings, he took with him only about 300 guys. Jacob is being confronted by Esau's militia. A formidable army is coming against him and Jacob knows that he is no match to his brother Esau. Now, as I said, one of the things that God is doing is demonstrating his relentless grace towards Jacob by setting up the entire scene. We're told in verses one through two that as Jacob begins to return to the promised land, he sees something. He sees a vision as he looks out upon the horizon. He sees another camp, another encampment, another group of people gathered and look there in verses one and two who it is. It's the Lord's camp. He he sees an encampment of angels uh, reminding Jacob that he's with him, that he will not abandon him, that he is going to see him safely home. Again, Jacob uh, is uh, is living a nomadic life. He's traveling with this huge herd of not only animals, but people back to the promised land, a journey that would have taken well over 40 days to complete. God is reminding Jacob that he is with him wherever he goes. But as you'll see, Jacob is still Jacob. Frankly, there's not much commendable about Jacob. If you will read in one sitting the entire life of Jacob as revealed in Genesis, you will conclude one thing. This guy is a loser. He has some serious issues with himself and with his God. He is not someone, characteristically, that one would want to emulate. God meets him with an encampment of angels, and what does Jacob immediately do? Goes back to scheming his old ways. God had just delivered him from Laban, from the mighty hand of Laban's army that came out and overtook him. And God sets him free. They've just had that little exchange where Laban says, you better not cross this line. And Jacob says, dude, I don't want to cross that line. I'm going home. And God in his relentless grace reveals himself to Jacob and says, look, I am encamped here. I got two two camps here. And throughout chapter 32, Jacob alludes to this two encampment. He continues to repeat the fact that there's two camps. Here's the point. Jacob is so prosperous because of God's blessing in his life that he has so many people, he can have two camps. But yet, Jacob is fearful and without faith. Jacob resorts to his scheming ways rather than trusting the sovereign God he prays to. And you might have read that and heard Jacob's prayer and thought, wow, man, Jacob, that's some deep theology you have there. But the reality is, is that his actions don't match his words. If he really believed that God was for him, why all of the schemes that he's coming up with, like dividing his family into two camps and sending this sort of uh, droves of animals to somehow appease his brother's wrath? If he really believed God was in control, why does he resort to such scheming? And this is why God confronts him in the darkness. I mean, Jacob is so afraid that he does some of the dumbest things in this chapter, like trying to cross the Jabbok in the middle of the night. This is what he does in chapter 32, verses, uh, verse 22, that same night, after he sent the sort of peace offering down the road to his brother. Uh, this is what he does. He takes his family, his two wives, which obviously is problematic as it is, his two female servants, problematic as it is, and his 11 children or 11 sons. Uh, this is setting up, by the way, just hinting here, setting up chapter 34, uh, indicating that he doesn't care too much about his daughter and crosses the ford of Jabbok. In other words, he is in the middle of pitch black, right? Well, you and I are used to having lights and we can see things even though it's dark out. It's really not dark out, right? The city lights shine, He is in the middle of the dark, crossing a rapid river. This demonstrates his lack of of faith in God. Although Jacob prays for divine protection, his actions demonstrate that his faith is in his plan rather than in the Lord. Which leads us then to this meeting in the middle of the night. As Jacob has now secured his family across the Jabbok, making himself closer and closer to Esau and to the promised land. We are told that Jacob is met by a man and that he wrestles with this man all night long. It is a very strange story. Uh, Martin Luther said this of this particular text, that it is the most obscure text in all of the Old Testament. It is a very strange text. We are told that Jacob wrestles with a man from from sundown to sunup. All night long, six, seven hours wrestling with this man. And later as it develops, we were told that this man isn't just a man, but but rather God himself wrestling. and, And we're left to wonder, how is it that Jacob prevailed against God? How is it that Jacob wasn't just immediately smited by God and and smacked down to dust? How is it that Jacob even made it five minutes into this, this match? Let alone six, seven hours? Because of God's relentless grace for Jacob. You see, God doesn't immediately destroy him. God is... Patient with his servant. Teaching his servant. And all Jacob cares about is getting a blessing. Even in the midst of his combat, his mortal combat with God, all he pleads for is a blessing in the end. But something happens to Jacob that night as he's wrestling. And I just want to show you, as they're wrestling there, look at verse 25. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Jacob is crippled by God's relentless grace. Jacob is going to leave this fight with his leg dragging behind him. A constant reminder for the rest of his life that God meets him in his weakness, not in his strength. A constant reminder of who he really is. So much so that God changes his name from Jacob to Israel. We're told in the text that that this man, who we later find out is God, asked him in verse 27, What is your name? And and he said, Jacob. Now for you and I, we read that and we say, Yeah, well that's the dude's name. But to a Hebrew listener, it would have said, what's your name? My name is Deceiver. My name is Dishonest. My name is Thief. I stole my brother's stuff. I deceived my father. I tricked my uncle. I'm a deceiver. That's who I am. But God, in his relentless grace, meets him in that moment and changes his name to Israel, which means really a, a twofold. It means not only that Jacob strives with God, but that God fights for him. I'm if you've ever taken the, the occasion to read your Old Testament, that is the story of the nation of Israel. Not only that they strive with God, that is they fight with God and His promises and His word and His commandment, but that God in His relentless grace for them fights for them even when it is unmerited. This event is such a formidable uh, time in the life of Israel that it is marked, we are told in verse 32, that the people of Israel don't eat this particular ligament that is point that it, that was used to pull jacob's leg out of socket as a reminder of this truth that jacob israel wrestles with god but yet survives and friend this is so true of us That God meets us not in our strength, in our two camps, in our prosperity. But rather, he wants his servants to be humble. Humble to the point where they trust in him and his power to save and not our own. Friend, how have you been tempted to look to your own strength? The things you have, the blessings that God has given you, rather than your weakness. We remember the Apostle Paul Was taught this truth that that only when he was weak was God strong. His entire ministry was a ministry of weakness. This is why he was constantly plagued by false apostles. Uh, Why we read from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 the need for a ministry of reconciliation because, in the eyes of the Corinthians, Paul was weak. He wasn't very good at preaching, he wasn't very good at speaking. His appearance was one of weakness rather than strength. And how does he conclude Second Corinthians? But, but, but God's grace is sufficient. For when I'm weak, then He is strong. You see, he was teaching the church in Corinth to embrace their weakness. And brothers and sisters, God in His relentless grace reminds us of our weakness every day. By making us powerless... So that we would rely on his power and not our own. In our text this morning, that before Jacob could meet Esau, he first had to meet with God. The Lord revealed his relentless grace to him, and so it is with us. With a new limp and a new name, he's prepared to meet the Lord's reconciling grace. And this is the truth we see in chapter 33. While we don't have time to look at all of that, or to really read it this morning, chapter 33 is really uh, the reconciliation of two brothers and the revelation that Jacob, well, he needs to have another meeting with God before he really becomes Israel. The story unfolds in chapter 33 that as soon as the day had broken and he sees the face of God, he also sees the face of his brother. He he sees Esau coming in the distance in chapter 33 and he sees the 400 men coming with him. And so in a moment of panic, he divides his family up. He puts the least in the front and the the best in the back. He lines up his family members to go before his brother Esau, bowing as he goes. We are told seven times uh, Jacob bows. Again, he, he, it's a picture of servitude. It's a, it's a picture of humility. He knows that his brother is going to kill him. At least that's what he thinks. Look here in verse 4. As Esau comes with his 400 men, Jacob there helpless with his wives and children, no army to back him up, no protection, He's isolated and separated himself from his his servants. It's just him and his family who've crossed the Jabbok. Verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. What Jacob thought he was coming to meet was his brother's rage. But rather what he Received was his brother's forgiveness. Friends, Esau had been tricked by Jacob. Outright tricked. The guy was just hungry. He just wanted a bowl of soup. And and Jacob got him to to sell him his birthright. Esau was no honest guy. Esau was no, uh, uh, no saint himself. Jacob had stolen his not only his birthright, but his blessing, his inheritance. Jacob had robbed him of everything. And all Esau got was a pat on the back and a an attaboy from his dad, Isaac. But what Jacob receives is the unmerited favor of his brother. So much so that, that Jacob, in reflecting on this, says... Says this to his brother. Look there in verse 10 10. Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you accepted me. Friend, I hope you do not miss the truth of this wonderful passage, that what Jacob deserves, he doesn't get. That God meets him in his brother's unmerited favor and love. That's so much so that when he's reconciled to his brother, he's like, No, I've seen God. So it is in our own lives. This particular story influenced our Savior. When Jesus told the story in the parable of the prodigal son, he almost verbatim quoted chapter 33, verse 4. We remember the prodigal son when he went and he squandered his wealth and the blessing of his father and he returned home. What did his father do? Did he chastise him? Did he question him? Did he say, you owe me all of that back? No, he ran and met him and embraced him and fell on his neck. So is the reconciling grace of God. You know, if you back up for just a moment, and you think Jacob's actions in chapter 32 had a goal in mind. In chapter two, 32 and verse 20, Jacob says, I may appease him with a present that goes ahead of me. And after that, I shall see his face and perhaps he will accept me. All the words Jacob uses in his thinking are displayed in this chapter and worked out in an entirely different way. See, he thought he could buy his brother's forgiveness. He thought he could buy his brother's grace. But reconciling grace is is free grace. Grace. It's a relentless grace. And it's a grace that we're told mirrors our Heavenly Father's grace. For in Jesus Christ, we are graciously accepted. Not because we merit it, but because of the meritorious work of Jesus Christ our Lord. Friend, how often are you like Jacob seeking to appease God by your presence... Rather than through Jesus Christ. This passage not only instructs us of our reconciliation with man, but with God. Brothers and sisters, the only way we'll ever be able to reconcile with one another is if the gospel of Jesus Christ is central in that. Again, 2 Corinthians 5 makes that evidently clear. Paul had no hope of reconciling with that church if it had not been for the ministry of reconciliation that he and that church had. But from reconciling, grace led to fierce grace. And as our time continues, I want to press on by pointing out something here in the text. The brothers have reconciled, but Jacob hasn't changed much. While he's met with the unmerited favor of his brother, Jacob still doesn't trust him. Jacob's brother Esau says, hey, let's go back to Sarah. Sarah is on the other side of the promised land in Edom. Jacob's destination is the promised land, particularly Bethel. So with that in mind, Jacob was told by God, get your rear end back to Bethel. And so Jacob here sort of half obeys this and half obeys his brother. He convinces his brother, no, I don't want to travel with you. You all go, you go on to Edom. I'll meet you there. That's a lie. He never, ever goes to Edom. In fact, we don't ever hear of Esau again until the death of their their father, Isaac. Jacob has no intentions of following his brother to Edom. More than that, he, as the text makes clear, never even makes it to Bethel like he's supposed to be. Jacob is in the wrong place and that wrong place is going to lead to devastating consequences for his family. From the midst of this relentless grace of God and the wonderful, glorious, reconciling grace with him and his brother, we see Jacob continues to half obey God. He sort of falls back into his own scheming plans. We're we're told in verses 12 on through verse 20 that Jacob kind of lingers, meanders through the wilderness here on his way back to Bethel. He doesn't make to Bethel until chapter 35. He settles first, we are told, in Sukkoth. Then finally he arrives in Shechem, which is in the promised land. So first he settles outside the promised land, then eventually makes his way into the promised land only to sort of get halfway to Bethel. He's 20 miles away. He, He could have made it. This, again, is important as you're reading this text and understanding what's going to happen in chapter 34. This half obedience, these old ways of Jacob lead to a regression rather than progression. But the truth we must have as Christians this morning is that the Lord does not abandon his servant, but confronts him with his fierce grace. He confronts him with depravity and warns him through what happens in chapter 34 to remind him of the necessity of obedience. As Hebrews chapter 12 reminds us, for the discipline of the Lord, excuse me, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Jacob's sin leads to what happens in chapter 34. So let's consider finally and quickly verse verse chapter rather 34. In chapter 34, we are told that Jacob's daughter, Dinah, goes out with the women of the land. Now, to be clear, this was a big no-no. She shouldn't have been outside of the campment. She should not have been alone. This same phrase is used back in earlier chapters to refer to the women of the land. You'll be reminded um, that family members were, were to go and marry and intermarry with their family in Haran and not with the women of the land, not to be even associated with them, lest something bad happen and the worst happens. But you see, it's because Jacob was in the wrong place. He wasn't where God had told him to be, that he put his family in danger. And we're told that Dinah goes out and is assaulted by one of the leader's sons of the land. Shechem, the son of Hamor, the the Hivite, prince of the land, goes and assaults Dinah. And then rather than wanting to see her cast away, his sort of heart changes and he falls madly in love with her. And wants her to be, a, be his wife. And so he goes to his father and says, Dad, go get me this woman. And so his, his father goes to Jacob and tries to barter with him. And you might be wondering, why am I being so hard on Jacob? Well, it's because Moses is being hard on Jacob. Look how Jacob responds at the news that his daughter, his flesh and blood, has been assaulted by a king in Shechem. Does he respond with rage? Does he he respond with anger? Does he mount his servants together? Does he call up his brother Esau? What does he do? He does nothing. Look at verse 5. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with, with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. His family has just been attacked and what does he do but sit on his hands? Clearly Jacob is reverted to his own ways and his passivity is apparent throughout the text as he is silent and so is God. No mention of God throughout this text. No mention of a prayer to God. No, no mention of a reliance on the Lord. But rather depravity, not only among the nations, but as you will see, among God's people themselves. We are told that the son of Hamor comes and, and pleads with his father, "Get that, get, get her for me." And, and so there's some bartering between the sons of Jacob. And with the, the people of the land. And, and essentially what happens is that Jacob's sons concoct a plan to put them at, at jeopardy so that they could attack them. They wanted to seek justice for the injustice that had been done to their sisters. To their sister rather. The problem was, is that the punishment wouldn't fit the crime. A greater injustice would be done upon the people even though an injustice had been done upon them. They convinced the men of the land to be circumcised, and and when being circumcised, they waited until they were in a lot of pain, and then they went and attacked. We're told, though, that all the brothers concocted the plan, but only two of the brothers exacted the punishment, Simeon and Levi. Later, when Jacob blesses his sons, he tells these two particular boys, uh, he curses them rather than blesses them. Fascinatingly enough, it's through the tribe of Levi that the priests would come. The ones who'd be doing all the slaughtering and would would constantly be covered with blood. But not the blood of innocent men and women. But the blood of. Of lambs who would cover their sin. This passage is dripping with the depravity of man. And the need of a savior. There was clear injustice. But as Christians as we think about injustice. We must remember that injustice cannot be meted out with more injustice. But only that which fits the crime committed. Well, as we see the story concluded, as the slaughter of the Hivites occurs. In verse 30, Jacob responds with frustration. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should they treat our sister like a prostitute? Even Jacob himself has no righteous bearing. Even though the punishment didn't fit the crime, at least Simeon and Levi had sense enough to know that it deserved some form of punishment. It is through this event that Jacob's eyes will be opened. As we'll consider next week in chapter 35, that he will meet with the almighty El Shaddai. Who will reveal himself as the one and only one who will deliver them from their enemies. And as we think about this grace of God from the murderous rage of Esau... To the trickster Uncle Laban and now the assault and shame of his family, Jacob is met with yet trial after trial, but also God's sovereign grace. That through life's most difficult challenges, we are reminded that we will face them, but the Lord will not abandon. Friend, as you consider these stories, the, the point remains the same that God has a plan for his people and that he will continue to work through sinners like you and I to bring about his reconciliation of humanity. While we endure distressing times, we as Christians must trust the Lord has met with us with unmerited favor. With grace that abounds. As Charles Wesley in his hymn, Depth of Mercy, reminds us, I have long withstood his grace, long provoked him to his face, would not hearken to his calls, grieve him by a thousand falls. Oh, Jacob fell, he fell time and time again. But brothers and sisters, God does not abandon his people but he sovereignly brings them home. How are you resisting the Lord's grace in your life? How have you gone from saving grace to fleeing grace? Brothers, and sisters, let us turn and trust in God's sovereign grace today. For our glory and his good. Let's pray. Father, we do pray this morning that your word would strengthen our faith in you. To know that you are El Shaddai. That you are God Almighty. That you will bring us safely home. It is for your glory and our eternal good, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.